welcome to Meeting Room 7. This is the seventh podcast in the series from the IP team at Steams and Bolton, in which we're talking all about patent and know-how licensing in the life sciences sector. I'm Charlie Tillett. I'm an IP partner and head of our life sciences group here at Steams and Bolton. For this episode, I'm again joined by two wonderful colleagues. From our IP team, we have Tom Collins back with us again. Hello. And we also have a special guest, Gustav Deuce, who's a partner in our commercial and regulatory team with specialist life sciences experience. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to contributing to this chat. Um, I would just say a disclaimer quickly, I'm not an IP lawyer. And I think this might be my first podcast as I come from more of a vlogging background, but looking forward to taking part in this discussion. Great stuff. Our previous podcasts have covered issues such as defining the scope of the licensing deal, how you maintain control of IP whilst allowing the licensee the commercial freedom it needs, payment terms and common pitfalls, then we looked at termination and disputes. Today we're moving on to focus on warranties, liabilities and indemnities provisions. And this is often a contentious area of negotiation with each partly rightly thinking very carefully about their level of exposure and protection under a license. It's also often an area where there can be some confusion and misunderstanding with the complex interactions between warranties and indemnities and the way these play off each other. So we hope to clear up some of those uncertainties in today's discussion. Tom is going to speak mainly from the viewpoint of a licensor to a patent and know-how license and Gustav is going to speak um, from the perspective of a licensee. So Gustav, let's start at the beginning. Please, can you explain what are warranties, liabilities and indemnities? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Charlie. Um, warranties, uh, in essence, are assurances in a contract uh, that a certain uh, set of facts are true. Um, indemnities are, um, again, express provisions of a contract uh, that set out that there will be compensation for particular often specified um, losses or damages in the event of a certain occurrence. And uh, what you refer to as liabilities, you might also refer to as limitations on liability, um, specify, set out any limitations that exist uh, in the contract uh, around the liability of one party to another. And um, they are, are often interrelated in that it's the giving of assurances, um, the qualification of what the compensation is for those insurances, and then the, the limitation on any assurances. And that interaction is something that you see play out often in negotiations. I think the other point to mention here that's relevant is that it's probably maybe maybe more so than some of the other areas you've covered earlier often becomes quite a legal discussion and if you look at surveys of um, the priorities for contracts for, for commercial people as against lawyers quite often limitations on liability will be right at the top of the lawyers priorities in relation for contracts but somewhere closer to the bottom of the commercial priorities because I think there's a big distinction in terms of people's understanding of it and and how they see these things play out in practice so one of the key roles uh, of a lawyer is to explain to uh, the commercial person how the limitations or indemnity provisions might play out in practice 
and one of the key roles of a commercial person is to engage in that discussion and to um, for them to come together really to form a view as to what works best for the client. Great, thank you very much. Tom, anything you want to add to that? I think your staff's given a really clear overview of those different kind of categories that we're going to obviously come on and talk about in a bit more detail in terms of the intricacies, but I think that's a, a really good summary of those different components of the license. Thank you. So looking now in a bit more detail at the warranties and the typical types of warranties that we see in, in, uh, in patent licenses in the life sciences sector particularly, as a licensee, what warranties would you want to see or expect to have under an agreement of this type, Gustav? Thank you. Well, as I said, I think the key thing is really to, to think about these things in a practical commercial way initially and then translate that into, into legal terms. So from a licensee's perspective, I'm getting a license for, for a patent for a particular application. What are my commercial priorities in that context? Well, I want to be to, to ensure that I can enjoy that license, that I can use it for the commercial aims um, that I intend it to be used for. Uh, and as such, I want to ensure that I have warranties in place or other contractual assurances um, that I will be able to do that. Uh, obviously, then the first priority is to make sure that um, the uh, licensor is actually in a position to, to give me um, the, the the patent or the know-how or other IP that they're licensing to me. So I'd like a warranty that they uh, own it uh, or that they have the rights to license it to me. Um, and then I don't want to be uh, finding myself in complicated legal situations. So I'd quite like a warranty um, that that um, uh, IP doesn't infringe a third party's uh, IP rights. And then Ideally, I'd also like a warranty that when I start to use that IP, it will be effective. So I might even push for something around suitability or fitness for purpose. And I think that's the, you know, that's a that's a brief summary. I think one of the issues in in terms of licensing um, that I suppose will will reflect in this discussion is the extent to which the license is standalone or whether it's forming part of a, a larger transaction. There may be additional warranties if there are more things going on than simply the license of, of patent and, and know-how, but uh, I think that's a that's a starting point, at least in this context. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And Tom, as a licensor, what warranties would you want to see and what might you say in response to Gustav's licensee points? Well, I think the ideal position from a licensor's perspective is to give as few warranties as possible to a licensee to minimise the risk of claims and to essentially provide the technology as is. But the reality is that you will generally need to give some level of comfort, as Gustav alluded to, in terms of having the right to grant the licenses to them, to allow them to conduct the permitted activities, particularly where you are actually receiving significant sums in exchange for that license, be it a, a sign-up fee or ongoing substantial royalties, that your licensee is going to want some level of comfort there. So I think it's a case of trying to make sure you give them that minimalistic comfort that you have the relevant rights, whether that's by ownership or licenses, but try not to kind of go too much further than that. And I think to Gustav's point about not infringing other third parties' intellectual property rights, you'd certainly want to avoid giving any absolute warranties in that regard that it will not or shall not infringe other third parties' IP, because it's not something that's fully within your knowledge or control, and there's always unexpected issues that might turn up. So even if you, you, you're very confident that you develop that IP independently, you're the first to market, and you've never had any 
issues from third parties to date, you, you still need to be careful in saying this will not infringe the rights of any third parties. So to try and find some level of middle ground there, you'd at least be wanting to qualify that by your knowledge at the time you enter into the contract um, and not give that as a, a complete guarantee that there won't be any infringement. And I think kind of building on that point as well, you're never going to want to give any absolute warranty as to the validity of the patents that are being licensed to your licensee under the contract, because again, that that is not something that you can fully control. And a vast number of patents are subsequently declared invalid by courts or patent offices. So again, you need to think carefully if you're giving any warranties around those kind of issues. I think in terms of the warranties you're getting from your licensee, generally speaking, you want to make sure that they themselves have the rights to enter into this license and the relevant authorities in place to do that. And that they're going to exercise and apply, comply with all applicable laws in the compliance with that license agreement, those kind of general points. But I think probably in terms of the ownership and things like that is more from the license or side of things that is going to be given those warranties. Yeah, sure. And sticking a bit now on the subject of warranties, in practical terms, what protection do you actually have when you get a warranty under an agreement, Gustav? Yeah, so the position is that the warranty gives rise to a potential claim um, for breach of contract. Um, and then you can claim for losses that flow from the breach. Um, so a, a warranty doesn't put you in a better position than that. And that's why I said when I was talking about warranties and this issue at the start is that, you know, you seek warranties or you seek other assurances in the contract. It won't necessarily be that every single um, contractual um, provision is framed as a as a warranty, and there may be other provisions um, that can achieve the same thing as a warranty, even though they're not in a section called warranty or expressly identified as such. Um, but yes, you you will you will be able to claim for for losses um, that flow from the breach of warranty in question. Okay, so having that in mind, that you have the right to sue for the breach and claim for your loss. Why would you then push in a negotiation to have an indem indemnity attached to that warranty, Tom? Well, generally speaking, indemnity provides a quicker, easier and fuller recovery than a general claim for breach of contract or breach of warranty. For example, you can have a, an indemnification obligation to cover all legal costs that are incurred, which you wouldn't necessarily get that same level of recovery where you were suing for breach of contract. And similarly to Gustav's point about the losses that flow from the breach, there, there are other legal obstacles that you would have to, to get through to claim those damages in a breach of contract claim, whereas under an indemnity, you don't necessarily have to satisfy quite as many obstacles to get that financial recovery. And that, that is generally speaking why you would push to have that. And I think as we alluded to earlier, generally you would have indemnities to protect against specific risks that the parties can kind of see at the outset of the relationship that might be there. So for example, where one of the contracting parties has been sued by a third party due to the other party's breach, having that indemnity protection puts you in a stronger position to be compensated for the losses that are connected to you being sued by that third party, which you're not at fault for. So those are obviously some important reasons for, for pushing for indemnity obligations in an agreement, but it's also important to consider the practical implications and it's not entirely straightforward to say right you've got an indemnity that that's it you're fine and you still need to actually enforce that indemnity and the party is still open to challenge the scope of that indemnity so 
even the perceived value isn't always aligned with reality and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to see that compensation in your bank account the following week just because you have an indemnity but it undoubtedly improves the legal protection and and it also increases the jeopardy to the party that might be breaching the agreement as well okay so very helpful but not necessarily a magic bullet um, and thinking in a little bit more detail then about these indemnities as a licensee, Gustav, what scope of indemnities might you want to see? Yeah, so um, I think it builds a little bit on Tom's answer. Um, I think the, the point he raised um, at the end that, that indemnities aren't a silver bullet. Um, clearly, uh, they do assist uh, if you want a, an express contractual right to claim for particular losses. And as such, the more indemnities you could put in uh, to, to the agreement, the better from, from either party's perspective. Taking into account uh, always how putting in indemnities or requests for indemnities is going to play out in practice and whether or not you're going to end up with indemnities you propose in your favour that are then going to be turned mutual. I think that's always something to consider. Um, but based on that, I think in the end, uh, ideally, you would like an indemnity for any losses you suffer you may end up with an indemnity uh, for breach of the agreement if you want to be more specific or you may and and in practice this is more likely end up with an indemnity just for breach of warranties and then even within that you might end up with indemnities for a breach of particular warranties but not others so the standard i guess indemnity in a in an agreement of this nature uh, would be an indemnity for claims uh, from third parties in relation to uh, I breach of the IP warranties, so IP infringements um, in respect of third parties. So look, I'd love to see indemnities that covers every single thing under the sun as a licensee in relation to me being granted this IP, but maybe the key indemnity that I that I really want is in relation to issues around ownership and infringement of third party IP. Thank you. And Tom, as a licensor, what scope of indemnities would you be looking for? Sure, thanks, Charlie. I mean, I think there are similar points that Gustav raised from the perspective of the licensor as well. And ideally, you're indemnified for any loss that you suffer that is connected with their exploitation of that technology, that you suffer as a result of them using that technology. But you also need to bear in mind that some of the use of that technology might be connected to your own obligations and it would obviously be difficult to say well you indemnify us when you've used our technology and we've been sued from from an ip infringement perspective so you might be excluding those kind of things but other than that you'd want to make sure that for example if a third party brought a claim against you as a licensor due, due to issues with a product that had been created from that license technology which is a possibility um, then you'd be looking to your licensee for indemnification there because well look yes this product has emanated from our technology but we're not the ones who have followed all these steps to get that product to the market they've used this technology to develop it but ultimately it's the licensee who's responsible for making sure that product is suitable and safe to go into the market and that is sometimes something that could happen where someone sees right this product has come from and originated from this huge bit of technology we're going to go after that party whereas you would be saying as licensor well no it's the licensee that has to to accept that responsibility subject to certain exclusions as i kind of alluded to really um and yeah so i think if it, it was claims that were due to the licensor's own breach for not gr granting a valid license then then you'd have to accept some kind of concession there 
but I think um, those are kind of your primary kind of considerations from the licensor's point of view. Before before we move on from from indemnities, I think it's worth just stopping for a second on on the issue of how this negotiation pans out in practice. Um, I was talking earlier about things becoming legalistic. I mean, indemnity is an area where uh, you can end up with a basic start, very basic starting position. Um, but in the end, if you ask for a general indemnities that are broadly worded, that will inevitably lead, if, if the principle of an indemnity is accepted at all, will lead to the other side um, specifying in much more detail what they will or won't cover for. So in an IP context, a classic is, is this whole debate around whether or not you're covering allegations of IP infringement or whether or not you're just going to indemnify in respect of final claims or judgments or what the position on settlement is um, in relation to IP claims often occurs. And then you often have a lot of debate around um, uh, the mechanism by which an indemnity is claimed. So whether or not you have to put someone on notice of a potential indemnity claim or issues that could give rise to a potential indemnity claim, and then conduct of claims, the whole sort of um, can of worms really around conduct of claims, the extent to which those kind of provisions work, how they work in practice, and whether you grant whether you grant uh, the other side conduct of claims if there's a risk that they'll then have an indemnity claim against them. Yeah, thanks, Gustav. And another point I think worth adding is that it ties into what we mentioned earlier about how the interrelationship between the warranties and the indemnity obligations and going to the point about that Gustav made about the IP infringement issues being the primary concern and being protected there. From the licensor's point of view, you're thinking, OK, well, I want to limit this indemnity to claims that rise a result from a breach of the warranties I'm giving. So that is all very much titled, what is the scope of that warranty? So if I, as the licensor, which I'd be pushing for, have limited my warranty to within my knowledge, then that has a knock-on effect of mitigating that indemnity obligation because you wouldn't necessarily have to indemnify if then there was a third-party infringement issue, but it wasn't something that was reasonably within the knowledge of the licensor at the time that they gave that warranty because that indemnity then doesn't tie to any breach of the warranty because you haven't breached that warranty. So I think that just reiterates the point about how you need to carefully think about the knock-on impacts of these different things. Yeah, very helpful. And so we've looked at the scope of warranties and indemnities um, and the parties will be thinking, of course, about their exposure and their risks involved in entering into the agreement. So more generally, how might a party go about limiting its liability under a contract? Yeah, um, I think the initial position, again, is to, to come back to the practicalities and for um, for you as, as a lawyer to have a discussion with your client about uh, the limitations more generally and the extent to which um, that they have liabilities under the contract and whether they want to limit their liabilities. So there needs to be an existential uh, debate as to as to what your stance is, um, given given an assessment of the commercial risks and what's likely to happen or could happen uh, under the particular license. Uh, I think that's always the starting point, and the and then the main the main issue is to identify well is this a, is this a license where I want um, I want to be able to claim widely for um, uh, uh, for issues that arise is this a con is is this a license where I'm comfortable that others may be able to to claim widely for issues that arise uh, against me um, so 
that will then inform your approach to limits on liability more generally. Again, thinking down the line, if I propose a limit on liability, what's the likely reaction uh, of the other side? Um, well, that, well, they are obviously going to respond by either seeking to limit that, to strike it out altogether, or to make it mutual. And you have to think about all of those different consequences um, before you get into the detailed drafting, ideally. And then when it comes to the detailed drafting, there's lots of different ways in which you might seek to limit your liability and lots of consequences of that. To give some examples, uh, you may seek to limit your liability in specific clauses throughout the license, uh, just by putting in the wording uh, around the limitation or that your only liability shall be the following. Uh, you may have a, a, a particular provision that, that's headed limits of liability that goes into detail about the liability that you're limiting. And then when you're thinking about the liability that you're limiting, you may be limiting your liability by reference to a monetary amount. Uh, you may be limiting your liability to various types of loss, so whether it's breach of contract or tort uh, claims. Uh, you may be uh, limiting your liability in respect of different heads of loss, so you may seek to limit loss of profits, and those losses might be direct or indirect. Um, and then finally, you may also have limitations because you uh, limit the way uh, in which people need to make claims. So you may have, a, for example, a time limit on any claims under the contract. And of course, all of these are uh, you seeking to limit your liability. And the reason I say seeking is because limitations on liability will not necessarily be effective. Uh, but I think we may come on to that. So lots of detail to think about and get really into the practicalities of it all. And you mentioned there financial caps on liability. Can you offer some guidance on how you might go about dealing with caps and particular numbers? Yeah, I think um, this is the, one of the hardest areas, I think, in, in any uh, discussion with your client and then negotiation. I think this assumption from um, commercial clients sometimes is that the, uh, the lawyers should come up with a suggestion as to <laughs> the cap. Um, the lawyer's feeling is that that is a commercial question in the end comes down to the risk that your client is willing to bear or the amount that your client uh, wishes potentially to claim for. With, I guess, the standard positions being uh, either no cap, ideally, if you want uh, an ability to claim widely, and if you're not too worried about your own liabilities under the contract, to maybe fees paid being a, a very restrictive, um, or royalties paid in the context of a license, maybe a, a much more restrictive, depending on the amounts involved, much more restrictive um, limit in terms of financial caps. But it, the key thing is, is it, it's an issue for negotiation and may also turn on other issues such as whether or not um, the the contract or the liability is subject to parent company guarantees or whether there's insurance that can be relied on and what the amount of those insurances are because they may come into play. So uh, lots to think about. Absolutely. Another point of detail that people quite often uh, debate is direct and indirect liabilities. Tom, can you outline for us what the difference between those actually are? Sure. So direct loss on, on the face of it, as, as is kind of hopefully kind of evident from, from the word, is natural results of that breach in the usual course of things, which is normally recoverable as damages for breach of contract. When you're looking at indirect or sometimes referred to as consequential loss, 
that is a loss that is not necessarily that the natural result of the breach in the normal course of things but arises from some kind of special circumstances of a particular case and they would only be recoverable as damages for breach where the party that is liable it was in a position to know of those circumstances when it made the contract so it's not an immediately apparent difference that you'd get on the face of reading agreement where you're talking about indirect and direct losses and i think it's worth reiterating that it's not always as straightforward as just saying these losses will always be direct losses these losses will always be indirect losses and to put certain categories in particular buckets and it will very much depend on the force the foreseeability of a, a loss in any kind of given circumstances and what the parties could have known at the point they enter into a contract so to give a practical example an additional payment that the innocent party may have to pay its supplier as a consequence of the breach of contract or even perhaps damage to reputation could in circumstances be found to be a direct loss when perhaps on the face of it, it might be seen as something that's a little bit further removed from that breach, but it is still possible that it could be seen as direct. Thank you. Um, in terms of limiting liability, there are certain things that you can't limit your liability for under a license. Gustav, could you outline those areas for us? Yeah, the basic starting position under English law is that you can't limit your liability for death, personal injury or fraud. Um, there are then, and I, and I say under English law, obviously other laws may end up being in play in the contract depending on um, the jurisdiction in which the uh, license is, 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 uh, is effective and um, depending on the nature of the, go the governing law clause and the dispute resolution provisions. So it's, it's worth bearing in mind that international issue. Um, you typically can't limit your liability so that um, there is no remedy under the contract. So um, saying that there's absolutely no comeback for you as a license or, uh, uh, or a licensee is unlikely um, to work. So you need to give some effective remedy under the contract. Um, if the license is standard term license, then even in a business to business context, they'll be subject to a test of reasonableness. So that's again, something to bear in mind when it's when you come to limits on liability. And then if you're in a consumer law contract, so if this is a license of IP to a consumer, which I think is not principally what we're talking about here, but I, I guess is in play from time to time, um, then your uh, limitations will be subject to a, to, to a fairness test. And it may be very limited in terms of um, what you can in fact limit your liability for. So it's a it's a it's a tricky question, but I mean the fundamental point is is death, personal injury, and fraud. And I think just one thing to bear in mind in this context: limits on liability. Um, you need to look really carefully again at the clauses and how they're working. It's really as with indemnities, it's a really sort of um, fine line, word by word analysis that needs to take place. And quite often, when it's when it comes to the provision that says uh, nothing in this agreement excludes or limits liability for you're fine death or personal injury and fraud you really need to look at what else um, is being carved out from the limits so what's the treatment in relation to the indemnities i think that's a really really important point are they covered by the cap or not it, uh, and that can it may be all the indemnities that are covered or all aren't covered or some are and some aren't and then what other what other provisions or wording has been put into this clause uh, to, to actually render the limits uh, less effective or ineffective. And 
it's, it's something that really needs careful attention. Okay, thank you. One other point of Vika that quite often comes up is in relation to indemnities for sub-licensees. Um, and in the majority of these types of patent and know-how license agreements, the licensee will want some kind of freedom to sub-license its rights to third parties to enable manufacture or testing or other elements of the drug production cycle to take place. Who should be responsible for any liabilities that arise as a result of sub-licensees actions or inactions? Tom, what are your thoughts there? Well, from a licensor's perspective, we, we'd certainly be saying that liability should sit with the licensee as the one responsible for putting in place a sub-license and controlling that relationship. Uh, and as licensor, you wouldn't have any direct contractual relationship with that sub-licensee. So it's very important to be able to rely on your licensee that you do have the relationship with to enforce the sub-license terms or to take action against your licensee where they fail to do that. And where you've got valuable IP and know-how that's being passed down the chain to another third party, this obviously risks a loss of direct control. So it's important to have contractual protection to mitigate these risks and, in, and also ensure there's an incentive on your licensee to keep that sub-licensee in check when it knows that it's essentially on the hook if that sub-licensee steps out of line. Okay, thank you. And with all of these issues, that we've discussed today, the licensor and the licensee are usually going to have polarised opinions as to what they're going to be comfortable with under the agreement. With that in mind, um, it'd be really helpful for your top tips on how to have a successful negotiation here to find a position that both parties can agree to. Gustav, what would you say on that? Well, I think I'll come back to the same theme that I've, I've mentioned a few times now. I think in the end, although it's tempting to think of these as legal issues, the discussion really needs to be commercially led and it needs to be practical. And if you can have a discussion that is chiefly led by the commercial priorities of the parties um, and is a practical discussion about what the risks um, are in, in practice and what, what each of the parties wants from the other, then I think you can draft warranties and indemnities and liabilities that interact to meet the party's aims uh, and you can find um, the right solution for that commercial position. And then, of course, these provisions don't sit in isolation. So uh, if there's a particularly good opportunity um, that has enormous upsides, then actually maybe you do need to take a bit more of a risk on the limits on liability, et cetera. So you need to think about the negotiating position as a whole. Um, and then I think Tom might come on to, you know, a bit more pr the practicalities in terms of what you can do to, to find the sort of the the right solution or what's sensible bearing in mind the different position of the parties but i think the key thing really is to establish clearly what the priorities of your client are and what the priorities are the, of the other side are and then you know lawyers can find a solution in terms of wording most of the time i think really the the failure that exists here is people take these clauses in isolation and beat them to death and you say well let's have a lawyer's discussion over it that tends not to solve anything i think it's far better to lead with the commercials and then just let the lawyers codify what the commercial agreement is and agreed okay thank you very much and tom what are your thoughts yeah i'd very much agree with everything gustav said there and i think it's it's important to have some pragmatism and i think recognizing that there will need to be certain concessions from your kind of ideal or your standard licensing terms from time to time and it won't always be the case to say, here's our license agreement, take it or leave it. And you, you do need to have some pragmatism there. And I think having some thought in advance as to what, where you might sit with fallback positions is a helpful exercise. For example, on 
warranties, indemnities or liabilities that you could ultimately concede if you're pushed, even if you stick to your guns for a couple of rounds of negotiations. I think knowing where you can move to and having that discussion early on is helpful in knowing you know, where, where there is scope to move on that. Um, and I think it also helps to adopt a starting position in your license agreement that's not entirely weighted in one party's favour on these issues, because ultimately that is going to create more work when it comes to negotiations. If every time you go through that exercise, you know that you're going to get pushback and you know that you're going to agree that. And it's in the benefit, it's in the interest of the commercial principles to, to, to kind of try and short circuit some of that. If we know, look, look, let's adopt a position that ultimately protects us, but isn't entirely unreasonable and isn't completely one way that no one's ever going to accept this. And we're actually going to make more, more work for everybody. So I think those would be the, the practical tips that I, I would certainly raise there. Great. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Thank you very much to Gustav and Tom for joining me and for all your thoughts. Um, and thanks for listening. Please do join us next time when we're going to have a look at various topical issues that arise within patent licensing arrangements, including what's happening with Brexit, the UPC, and questions that come up on the technology transfer block exemption regulation. So until next time, thanks very much. Mm-hmm.